Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. For this episode, we're going to bring you highlights from the future game webinar we held last month. This was a full day virtual conference that spanned eight hours and featured nine speakers. You can purchase a recording of the entire conference to play at your leisure. But for this podcast, we're going to give you a selection of the talks. First up is England rugby coach Eddie Jones, who started by telling Simon Austin about one of the things he had learned from lockdown and how he'll take it forward into his coaching. It's made me remember how much I've forgotten, if that makes sense. Um, and I used to be a really avid note taker when I was a young coach and when I was a teacher, take copious summary notes, summarize those notes. It was the way I learned. And since I've got older, um, because I found it easier, I've actually found it easier to remember things, but I've also forgetting things. And so I've started keeping a little book now, which I haven't done for a long while of key coaching points. And I'm, I'm, uh, doing that quite religiously now. So we'll see how long that lasts for. Okay. Is there anything in particular you've written down that you could share with us? Uh, Well, the big thing, I think the big reflection I've had is how diligent you have to be in always mining for conflicts in your team because they're always around the corner. And, And as a coach, what you're trying to do is to stop that conflict to be a, a major issue for your team. you Because, know, you know, a, a team's always a, a balance between cohesion and, and conflict. Mm. And when you've got, we've got 15 players in football, you've got 11. But they're never, ever right. They're never, ever perfect. Um, and the ability of you to mine for what are potential conflicts or what are conflicts and, and knock them on the head, I think, is is so crucial. And I think part of that is that, Winning always makes you mind less. You go a little bit deeper than you should. And, and that's probably the thing that's written in red um, and the thing that I'll uh, remember the most. Okay. Is that conflict healthy in a team then? Do you have a certain oh, level? You have to have it. It's always there. It's like, you know, I don't know what size family from, how many brothers and sisters you got? Oh, just one sister. Yeah, but every time you sat down for dinner, right, there's four people at the table and, and things aren't, are never the same at, at the dinner table. You know, there's always something a little bit different. Your dad's had a bad day. Your mum's lost the cat that day. You didn't get the grades you wanted at school. Your sister, a boy she liked, looked at her, so she was happy. So it's always different and that's how a team is. Things are always different and what you're trying to do is to make sure that those differences don't affect the cohesion of the team. Mm, that's interesting. And does that just come with experience, the ability to navigate that? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think experience helps. But I also think if I was a young coach starting out now, I'd do a, any number of jobs I could do. Because I think having a wide range of experiences definitely helps. Like, you know, I know that having coached in Japan for five years, it's helped my ability to read the non-language signs much better than I, I did before I lived there because when I was in Japan I didn't have the full command of the language so I used to have to pick up signs of uh, what people felt by their by the way they they carried themselves so you've got to you've got to you've got to try to build that experience up as a, as a young coach you've got to try to build that experience up 
I know you came out with this quote in uh, January of saying we want to be the best team the game has seen. Um, first of all, do, do you always think it's important to set big objectives like that, big big dreams? Yeah, no, 100%. I think you've got to dream big um, because no one knows where you can go. No one knows individually how good you can be. No one knows how good a team can be. You know, when Klopp started at Liverpool seven years ago, did he think he could take the team to where he did? But I bet you he set them a, a goal of, of what they wanted to do, whether it was to make Liverpool proud again of their team, whatever it was. You've got to set something that people can buy into. And I think it's always got to be a bit inspirational, you know, to make people feel they're part of something special. Because, you know, our dream of being the greatest team ever, like, it doesn't really matter whether we make it or not, but I want the players to drive towards that and I want it to be more than than just trying to win a next World Cup because the record shows that if you lose a World Cup final, the next World Cup generally is, is not too positive because what I think happens is that teams think they've done okay and the other 18 teams that didn't make the finals are, are working their socks off to try to address the problems. Yeah. So I want our players to aspire really, really high goals. Have you managed to create that feeling, do you think, that it is that World Cup final was something to build on and you'll go on from there rather than being the end of something? Uh, I think so. But, you know, the proof's always in the pudding. Um, you know, I hear players talk about it in media without being prompted to do it. And I was a uh, funny thing is, yeah, we lost the first game after the World Cup, which was a France game, and it was the best thing that happened to us. Yeah, you know, sometimes you got to have a you got to have a loss to to get you in the right spot to go forward. Um, because, you know, success is not a linear line. You know, there's ups and downs, and you got to ride those. So, I think we finished the Six Nations in a really good spot. Really, had taken our game forward a little bit. Now, you know, like every team, it's it's ground zero, isn't it? Starting again. With that aim of being the best team in the world, are there any particular gains you can make, do you think, in any particular areas? Uh, look, I think the big thing in the game at the moment, there's equalisation across the board in terms of physical training. You know, things that we did with Japan that were maybe a little bit revolutionary training-wise now is commonplace. You know, every team's doing it. So all those physical advantages are getting harder and harder to, to get an edge. I think... Um, the big edge is tactically being able to adapt to games. And the, it's, not a, it's not only tactical, it's a psychological adaption to games. Like how many times now you've seen in a lot of sports these massive momentum swings where one team comes out, leads three goals, and then they look like they're unbeatable. Then all of a sudden something happens and the whole game swings and then the other team gets momentum. But the other team had been so fantastic for 30 minutes now can't find themselves and and they can't find themselves because of this because they're unable on the field to say right this is what we've got to do and this is where we've got to go so it all comes down to the leadership of the team the adaptability of the team so that's to me that's the big change yeah and does the that big win down, for us yeah yeah and does that come down to what you've talked about before which is the players having to manage things coach things on the pitch yeah yeah 100 percent but the coach's responsibility is to create environments where you can grow grow those skills and grow those qualities. And I think that's where training becomes a lot messier than it used to be. And I've seen football sessions where they look like they're perfect. They're like clockwork. 
But the game's not like that, is it? The game is messy, so you've got to create sessions that are that are messy, and then your ability then to feed back to the players and the players' ability to reflect on what's being done, I think, is crucial going forward. And that's where I see the big advancements of the game. Right. Okay. Would you create scenarios in a training session then? So you might pull a couple of players off without telling the players and see how they respond to those then? Constantly do that. Constantly do that. And and the players don't enjoy it. And it makes them uncomfortable because they like doing, you know, set 15 versus 15 or 11 versus 11 in football. Um, so we're constantly taking players off, making the players adapt quickly, create situations on the field, solve problems. Yeah. So, so you've got to kind of try and create that chaos in an artificial way, really. 100%. And, but you've also got to have a method to doing that. You've also got to always know where you want to end up. What do you want to end up from this situation? You know, I see, and, and it's been in rugby lately, there's a lot more emphasis on having a games philosophy to teach the games. Yeah. But you can't just let kids, kids or players play games. You've got to know what you're trying to achieve in that game. What's the end result? And it's like any, any drill you have. What's the end point of the drill? Where do you want to get to? And, and always be creating that. And then, and therefore, I reckon the skill of coaching is getting more and more complex. Um, before, you know, you'd have more structured type sessions. But those sort of sessions are becoming less and less relevant to the game. Right. Okay. And is a big skill of the coach knowing when to step in then and when to just leave the players to work it out in, in a session? Yeah, nah. You've summed that up really well, mate. And it's your observation skills. What are the what do the players need now? Do they need you to help them or do they do you need to let them work it out for themselves? And that ability to make the right decision again comes from trial and error. Don't, again, as a coach, don't be afraid to get that wrong. Step in when you shouldn't have stepped in or, or don't or don't step in. Experiment and you'll find out what your team needs. And yeah, the great thing is you can always keep getting better at that. You'd never you never get to the end. Yeah, yeah. I suppose there can be quite a lot of ego as a coach, can't there? That your ego tells you you should be in control of it the whole time. Well, that's how sport was set up, wasn't it? You know, the coach is the head figure. Players do what the coach says, and and in England, of course, yeah, everyone's called the boss, aren't they? You know, yeah, the gaffer, the gaffer, the boss. So we do what the gaffer tells us. But how can the gaffer tell you to cope with five million different scenarios on the field? The gaffer can't, you know, and that's the reality. So it's it's the responsibility of coaches to develop guidelines for the players. Um, so they they experience those scenarios. They've got some guidelines to follow. They understand the cues and then and then help them uh, work out better solutions all the time. Fantastic. Um, and I know when we did the the podcast, you were talking again about how we gone from command and control to be more of a facilitator. I'm quite interested, again, in um, coaches being uncompromising because is that often seen as a bad thing? Like I was reading the Dylan Hartley book, which you feature in quite a bit, and he was saying about the 6am texts from you while you're on the treadmill. You'll text <laughs> the players and he said, you feel your balls tighten and your brain melt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope they didn't tighten, didn't melt too much. Uh... No, well, I think there's there's some things that have changed in coaching and some things haven't. 
and the things that haven't changed are the standards on the field, what you're demanding of the field, because the the game demands that. The game takes you to those areas where unless you're prepared for it, you can't cope with it. You know, again, I use the example of Liverpool. So when Klopp first started Liverpool, everyone was saying he trains them too hard. Remember? They had hamstring injuries. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's not going to make it in Premier League. And what does every team try to do now? Train like Liverpool. So you've got to set those high standards and you've got to stick to them and you've got to be insistent. Yeah, but the big difference now is that you've got to be much more consultative and much more caring and much more uh, empowering of the players off the field. You know, that has changed. But yeah, the standards yeah. on the field, no change, mate. Right. If, you, if you change those, you, you're, not, you're going to be in the, in the grandstand with the fans. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's a balance again, isn't it, really? Because a lot of players will want to feel comfortable or people in any walk of life and you have to push them out of that. But some people don't like it, you know, and it's the way you go about it, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, they don't like it at the time. But again, most, you know, most players I've coached, when you sit down with them post their retirement and they reflect and they know that you'll push them hard because you want them to be better. And as long as you're doing that to get them better, they will be, again, it's like the sauna. When they get out of the sauna, they realise that you're doing it for their benefit. And I think as long as you keep driving the player to get better, because what are the two things players want? They want the coach to care for them and they want the coach to get them better. Yeah, and if you can fulfil that and and as you said, get that balance right, then, then you're on the right track. Next up, we have Tom Vernon owner of the Right to Dream Academy in Ghana, and chairman of Denmark's FC Norseland. Tom spoke about two of the key pillars of Right to Dream, character development and respecting football's soul. I think that, um, the, you know, there's a, I don't know if it's a universal, but there's an ever-growing belief that um, football is losing connection with its soul. Um, and so I, I like to ask myself, if, if football's original soul was a person, how would it design a football academy? And and would it design a football academy that says, um, you know, you can join us at eight, but if you have a bad season, we're going to kick you out? Or would it say that you can be with us for eight years, but if you don't play, if you're not going to play for our first team, then we don't have any interest in what you're going to go and do after that. You're just going to leave us, and you know, maybe we'll have a token sort of transition uh, program out of our academy. But what I believe football soul would be saying if it was designing academies is that. You know, once you're in, you're in, and we want to educate and develop you as a holistic, uh, from a holistic perspective, as a whole human being. Um, because you know, I'm sure we will have kids on this call, and that's how we educate our own kids. So why would we? Why would we do it differently in in an academy? So, uh, uh, right to dream. We don't deselect players or kick players out when they've had a bad season. We make long term commitments um, to build you as a as into a young man or into a young woman. And we feel as proud of you if you end up on scholarship at Stanford as if you end up transferring to, to Ajax, like one of our guys uh, just did recently. And so reconnected with football soul and saying, let's ask ourselves, um, what, are the, uh, what does football really stand for? And how can that be reflected in uh, the decisions that we make on, on a daily basis is, is fundamental to what we do. And I think one of our big advantages there is that we started in, uh, we started in Africa where... Um, in most cases, we see that the lack of regulation and red tape often leads to exploitation within African football. But there's also an advantage that 
um, maybe we are, haven't been as, as constrained by so many sort of potentially onerous regulations around how academies should be structured in the UK or, or in, 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 in Denmark. And so we, could, we were allowed to envisage a totally different interpretation of what an academy would look like. And now bringing that up into Denmark and saying, we don't want to deselect players. And even if you do come from a privileged background, we would like to be involved and interested in what you do if you don't play for our first team, because all of those things start to shape the trust and feeling and culture and environment that we live in on a daily basis that, hey, we're not here for you because uh, you may be a multi-million dollar transfer for us in future. Uh, we're here because we view our academy as uh, you know, using football and using global travel as an amazing way of developing you as a human being. And we want you to be a proud graduate and alumni of our system, whether you end up like some of our Danish students are now going off to top universities in America, or whether you end up as a coach or whether you end up as a first team player, they all have equal waiting for us if you uh, buy into our values and, and, and believe in the philosophy that we have. So we have full-time character curriculums um, at both of our academies, which um, uh, eight-year curriculums where we have uh, bi-weekly classroom sessions, guiding, challenging uh, in relation to character development. We've all heard it many times, the coach who says, um, the best player from my under-15s who made it the furthest wasn't the most talented, he was the player with the most character. So why don't we invest much more systematically in the development of character and then moving one step beyond that, we now have a full-time purpose department, which is headed by uh, uh, King Osei Jan, who's a former professional footballer uh, and has returned to Right to Dream to lead our purpose department. And you know, the question is here, how can we help you un uncover your purpose? How can we help you find a deeper meaning to what, what you're doing? Marcus Rashford you know, has been referenced today. And how, how does that come about? And, uh, and, and so... We have a structural systematic uh, process to challenge our kids to say, what is it that you care about and how could you leverage your, your platform um, as a footballer in terms of wealth and network and social media and all these kind of things um, to really make a difference in the things that are most important to you. And we hold within that regard a fundamental belief that uh, working with that purpose and having a deeper purpose will improve your performance on the pitch. But um, uh, more importantly, it's going to make you a happier and, and, and more fulfilled person. So we've started working now with, with uh, Pippa Grange, who Dave again referenced before and has now joined us um, to help build our purpose uh, departments and our journey towards purpose within our club in, in, here in Denmark as well. And, and I think when, when we look at the Marcus Rashford example, which is so well structured, I think the question that we ask ourselves is, what we should be asking ourselves as clubs and academies is how are we creating a system and a structure for all of our kids to aspire to behave like this and understand what's important to them and, and I feel that we're still in a stage of a randomness a little bit that you know maybe you had good parents or maybe you fell into a, a situation that allowed you to act on your purpose but how can we individually challenge every child and make them aware of this when they join our academies at the age of 11, um, that this is going to be um, more important to us uh, as, as academies in terms of who we're graduating than whether you go on playing the World Cup or the Champions League, but can you articulate and act on your purpose? And so uh, in Right to Dream, if, if Marcus Rashford was actually a, um, you know, a player playing in the, in, in the third division in Sweden, for example, but was still 
trying according to his capacities to take those actions, we would be prouder of him and recognize him more within our academy than a player who is maybe playing in a huge club but isn't taking the opportunity um, to affect those around them positively um, as a result of uh, the platform that they have. Another example of this with our first team, for example, is to, you know, once a year we play, uh, our male team play with their, uh, their black role models um, on their backs. And so that's uh, part of our uh, Black History Month is to, is to do an educational month focused on uh, black role models. And then at the end, uh, not just our, our black players, like in this example, but um, all of our players will pick a black role model and then play in, in a league match. We also do the same thing for International Women's Day and had a great experience uh, a year ago when uh, Beyonce, our number nine, scored against FC Copenhagen. But it's all part of a, a journey like the common goal um, partnership that we have in terms of uncovering um, purpose, starting conversations, asking players what matters more to you, what do you care about and how could you act on this? And I think that there will become much more of a movement. We see some of the most progressive agencies you know, like Rock Nation starting to build this much more into their um, uh, into their thinking with their athletes. And I think that um, it will be inevitable for clubs to start integrating this into the educational curriculums more for performance, happiness, and, and, and purpose reasons. Dave Redding, the former head of team strategy and performance for the Football Association, delivered a talk titled From Island Nation to Global Citizen. One of the key themes was about changing football's view of coaching. Coaching. Look, I, I think coaching's an interesting one. So I've certainly been advised during the course of my career that you know, maybe you should leave coaching a, a, alone or maybe you shouldn't talk about coaching. And um, I've always found that strange. If I go all the way back to the start of my career or, or my time, at least with England rugby, Clive Woodward, Sir Clive Woodward, was adamant you know, back in 1997, that all of the people working with players were coaches. He expected us to be coaches. And he was the first leader I encountered and, and one of the few actually since in my career who understood the value of bringing people together and democratising the conversation. So the, the fitness coach that I was was just as entitled to have an opinion on coaching as the coaches were on, on the work that I was doing in the gym or on the field. And yet, as things have gone on, and particularly in football, there are big power dynamics and hierarchies which have coaching at the top. And I think it's an interesting thing that might evolve. I'd like to think it would evolve because this concept of the unicorn who's paid 10, 15 times more than anybody else in the organisation, who has all of the answers, I think is a very flawed leadership concept in general. And I think also maybe underplays the value and the opportunity from, from others in, in the mix. So kind of three points in here I wanted to touch on. The first one is around specialization and the specialization of coaching, which is something I'm really passionate about. So for the 2003 World Cup, if I dig this one out, there were eight coaches involved in Clive Woodward's team from himself as the head coach, really coordinating and managing forwards, defence, kicking, skills, scrum, throws, vision, and if you like, law, referees and laws, as well as fitness and nutrition and, and other things. So this was way, way back in, in 2003 and actually started way before that. And certainly the NFL uh, had, had adopted that way, way before this. So this idea of specialisation in, in elite uh, in team sports is not new. 
and is something I've seen add huge value and I see adding huge value in the future. If we look at, you know, this slide was one I put up at a presentation, board presentation in 2014 at the FA when we're at the start of making changes to the strategy and the structure. And outside of some of the rugby guys I've mentioned here, not many people recognise Bruce French or Richard Halsall or Kevin Shine or Peter Such from cricket or Stuart Dew from AFL, who were already in really specialist roles in wicket keeping and fast bowling and midfield coaching in, in AFL. And if you if you go forward to the Hawthorne AFL club as one example, I was fortunate enough to spend some time with these guys last year. Um, you know, guys like Damian Carroll with with the title of head of learning and development, but as a coach, he's he's in there. Brendan Bolton is a head coach. Scott Burns looking after the forwards. Sam Mitchell looking after the, the midfield guys, but also restart coach, uh, midfield coach, et cetera, et cetera. So look, the opportunity I, I, I see here is, is enormous. And yes, football started to embrace this. You know, it, it, it's actually really encouraging to see the, the work at Brentford. And let's see how many coaches have been stolen from Brentford, from Nicholas over to, to Andreas Jorgsen most recently, but Thomas uh, Grommermark at, at Liverpool and, of course, Bartak, again, a, a Brentford guy. But, you know, let's be honest, specialisation of coaching is still not really recognised or universally adopted within football. And I do see the huge opportunity in this model, both from a, a team perspective, the ability to really get down to the detail, whether that be set plays, throws, or tactical elements and phases of the game, through to the technical improvement of the players, the players within the team uh, at every level. And I, and I guess that's one of the things I see most opportunity in, not just the technical and tactical piece, which is, I'm delighted to see has started to happen. But if you compare the prevalence in football with that in other team sports, it's still an awfully long way away. And perhaps there's some cultural inertia still around why we should adopt that. And, and hopefully the work that's happening at Liverpool, at, at Arsenal and other places, maybe starts to tip the balance there and, and people really start to adopt that. But as I'm sure Eddie would testify, in order to, to gain from this work, then the head coach has to adopt a different style and a different role and it becomes much more about how you co-coach, how you integrate this group of people uh, into the dynamics of working together, but also the schedule of working together as well. But not something that no, no other sport has trodden the path before or, or made a success of. And I think it's, you know, I mentioned briefly there this concept of, of, of player development. And we're all very familiar with that. And, you know, again, we've seen the start of individual development coaches happening. And it's something that I guess in great academies, we, we've also seen good practice in. Again, I see more opportunity, um, particularly at first team level, where I don't see an awful lot of this work happening. It's almost like, uh, in some cases at least, development finishes. Again, I'd call out Brentford as an opportunity and an example of a club that's really embedded this idea of lifelong development as part of its strategy. And I hugely applaud the work that they've done there and endorse that absolutely you know from the perspective of opportunity we should never start in my opinion with this belief that that people can't get better at every stage of their career and to borrow Dave Allred's phraseology that doesn't mean 
that they're not doing really well. It's just that we have a belief that everybody now, no matter how good they are, can get better. And incorporating that opportunity into first teams at every level, I think, is still a really undervalued aspect of, of coaching at the top level. And maybe just to step in a little bit further to coaching, I wanted to really focus on this idea of how we coach, not just you know, what is coached. So, Again, I'd call out Eddie here for some really tremendous work. I think Eddie Jones is really one of the world's most innovative coaches. And I love the the future gaze and the humbleness of involving someone like a Neil Craig to help him be a better coach. And, you know, the, the, the opportunity that people like like Neil, uh, you know, Russell Earnshaw, who's working in football right now, uh, Craig Boyd, uh, Nigel uh, Redman, who's a rugby player who's gone across to swimming. These coach developers are not working with the youngest coaches. They're working with the best coaches right at the top end. So there's a real humility and thirst to learn about how to get better at the top level, you know, to take every single advantage. And I think that's a real important thing going forwards. You know, not this idea that coaching's a black hole and it's a myth. Uh, or, or it's magic, you know, but this idea that we can get better at coaching in every respect, that the how of coaching is just as important as the how, arguably more than, than anything else um, that, that, that we do. So, you know, really, I think it's too too prevalent still that this idea of the, the, the senior coach, the head coach, the unicorn is untouchable, that nobody can really ask probing questions about how they're doing things or what they're doing to contribute to performance. And, and I think that's a double-edged sword. In, in if, if that's the philosophy that the head coach takes, is allowed to take, then there's a risk, of course, that you only get judged by results. And being judged by your process or supported and challenged on your process, I think, is an, an incredibly important opportunity of, of everybody getting better and also the organisation being more patient with, with the coach. And I think to, to that in mind, you know, the, the, the best organisations have embedded their style of coaching, the details of their coaching within their DNA. It exists within the IP of the organisation uh, itself, not in the mind, in the head of the head coach. And, and that's all. And then when they leave, it all disappears with them. And I think this is a really important thing going forwards. this idea that in coaching, just as much as everything else, there should be visibility and accountability of the process and the outcomes. You know, no free passes because you've got a, you know, a storied career of coaching. You should never assume just because your record's great that you know how to do it and you shouldn't be asked the, the tough questions. And I think, again, going forward, this idea of maturity of organisations says that IP and knowledge is something that's built with the organisation, not just the head coach. And ultimately, the head coach is recruited to that IP, that style, that way of doing things, rather than just bringing, with, bringing it with them for a very short period of time. And maybe what we see going forwards, if we, if we think more about the move away from unicorn head coaches, is this idea of more democracy, the idea that the coaching team and the wider multidisciplinary team working collectively within a, an aligned strategy and vision really create more value by doing it that way than just this idea of there's a singular person with all of the knowledge and the organization lives or dies based on their on their outcomes 
And I, you know, I put out there that maybe in future, in a more mature business uh, sense, the incentives start to reflect that. So we don't get the situation where a head coach is being paid 10 or 15 times the next highest paid member of their coaching team or support team. But there is a more direct and equitable distribution of, of wealth. But the visibility point, I think, is really important. You know, if, if I was to use an analogy, I think at times at its worst, it can look like the financial crisis of 2008. In other words, don't ask about coaching. You know, it's all fine as long as we're winning, which is akin to, you know, don't worry about what the trading desk are doing as long as, as long as we're making money and everyone else is doing the same thing. You know, I think as businesses mature, as crises happen, as opportunities are, are seen more directly from what they are, I think greater accountability, visibility and ownership of coaching is a real opportunity for the future. And for the first time, we had a double act for the conference. Manchester City sports psychologist Lorraine O'Malley was joined by City and England goalkeeper Karen Bardsley to discuss the work they've done together. It was something that when I was a bit younger, I didn't really realize just how valuable the psychological aspect of high performance actually was. It was only until I (laughs) broke my leg rather severely in college that I had the strange pleasure of working with renowned sports psychologist Ken Revisa, and he kind of really helped me open my eyes to how much control I actually do have over my own performance and and how I actually can, um, you know, take control a bit more quickly through a lot of this stuff that we've just discussed there around perspective and and opportunity and things like that. So um, it's no longer about waiting for things to happen to you. It's about taking control of what you can. And I would say a a huge majority of of what we do day to day is about the mindset and place that you put yourself in order to try and achieve your most elite performance. And I mean, that's been highlighted for me over, you know, 2015, 2019 and in those World Cups. And I think my performance has just increased when I kind of started to understand, actually, you know, we do need to prioritize this. We do need to kind of work this into my day to day, especially when you are, you know, in a, a World Cup bubble or a tournament bubble, you know, you need to try and figure out how much you can control as much as possible. So, yeah, going forward, I would definitely steer anyone who wants to try and eke every percentage point out of their performance that they possibly can. Like, this isn't something that should just go overlooked, particularly if you feel like there is an issue. It's something that the player needs to kind of first accept that, you know, this isn't going as well as I wanted it to. Like, how can I get help or how can I make this change? So I think, yeah, I, I completely agree. This is a massive, massive part of players' top performance. We're all human. We're all fallible. Like we probably will get it wrong and we need to learn about when we get it wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, building those relationships and trying to be um, more person-centered in the, in the support that we provide, but then sharing those, rela- sharing those uh, experiences more widely with the other staff that we work with so they can start to get to know you the person as opposed to you the goal you know you the goalkeeper I think that that was important too around how we tried to nudge other people to to do that with you too um because I think like speaking to psychology and, and our training you know we probably have training in in, in trying to to do those things but equally trying to encourage the other people within the wider MDT to, to take notice and and start to you know get curious about your story and and really listen to to what it is you're saying probably 
allowed us to 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 jump on to the next point around being able to take perspective so this was something that you know we had spoke about and and it was great you know that you have somebody that you can speak to 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 be able to help you take perspective as an individual but also the people that you're working with um and and probably a big believer in it's not just about how I see it or how you see it or how a physio sees it or a coach sees it. You know, we have to be able to be flexible and adaptable to, to be able to step into each other's shoes. And whilst we might, might not have the experience, you know, I've never been a professional goalkeeper. I've never been a, you know, a football coach, but how, how can I try and stretch myself to, to be able to support you and support the system um, in trying to increase in people's awareness uh, in order to take perspective. And, and we really want to do that to try and help people be adaptable. So, you know, come back to the why we would try and encourage people to take perspective. If we know their story, we know a bit about your, your past and the things that have shaped you, it can help us to then try and step into your shoes and non-judgmentally see it from where you're stood like as practitioners that are trying to support you and, and, and help you. And one way in which we, we try to do that is, is increase your self-awareness, but also the practitioners around you self-awareness in, in what it would be like to, to support you. Um, and, you know, you mentioned there around injuries and different, and different things, but that, that's probably been one of the ways we've tried to in the past bring you into the case conference. And so I know Sarah spoke about case formulations and formulated plans um, around supporting players I suppose being in the senior environment we were we were able to to bring you into that conversation and and share that collaborate that make you feel like you were part of that and you had some ownership in that so that again it was co-created it was something that wasn't being done to you you know injured we need to do x y and z to make you not was actually around trying to shape that story um what that was going to be like for you and with the support team trying to create this um sense of empathy to to fuel more connection to be able to take the perspective and recognize that that perspective is your truth and where i'm stood that perspective might be my truth and how how can i do that and you know whether people subscribe to the different types of personality profiling or different things we we have used that as a tool you know insights and spotlight to be able to have some conversations around perspective taken and Mm -hmm. and us a shared language as a performance support team to be able to tap into that with you to help you co-create that plan and I suppose that's a question around when has that perspective taken been really important for you as a player receiving support um, when, it, when either you've been challenged to take perspective or you know it's helped that others have been able to do it to support you yeah, I think, you know, these all tie in really nicely to, as you say, understanding the individual's story. Um, and for me, unfortunately, like, yeah, injury has been something that's kind of plagued me from a very young age. I've had some really serious injuries. And by you guys exploring that a little bit, I think has been able to perhaps like inform some of the decision making that, you know, you've taken in terms of integrating me into the case conference process. And, um, you know, when I was at university and I did my undergrad I did graphic design and I was really into the collaborative type of process and you know the feeling of working in a team and so the fact that you allowed me to take part in you know case conferences and kind of have a little bit more control and autonomy about the decisions that well 
the decisions I was allowed to make <laughs> in, in regards to my rehab. Um, I, I felt, you know, really empowered by that and by you taking that perspective and then also, you know, the support staff taking that perspective as well kind of allowed me to express myself in different ways. I felt I could explain myself in a much better, more succinct way because, you know, I was able to say, okay, well, you know, I'm feeling A, B, and C. You take one example where it was very on early on in the surgery that I had. The phases that I was going through were very, very restricting and limited. And um, as you can probably tell, I have a lot of high physical and mental energy. So I was really struggling to kind of expend it. So I was, I was going to training and I was having a little bit of work kind of around my scar site. And that was pretty much it. Like I would come into training for like 15 minutes and then go home and just sit there and kind of twiddle my fingers. And I was just like, well, you know, I feel really anxious about this and I don't like it. So is there a way that I can kind of use my energy in in a more productive way to to kind of make me feel tired at, at the end of the day or, you know, whether that's physically or whether I feel like I have a purpose. So, you know, we created kind of a strategy around, um, okay, well, what can I do? And, you know, I think from a practitioner's perspective, I, I would like to think that by me saying that made me easier to work with. And then that you guys could kind of understand, okay, as an elite athlete, you feel like you're doing nothing. That is like just the ultimate kind of uh, anxiety provoking moment because you always want to feel like you're making progress. So by allowing me to, you know, do upper body sessions where I could (laughs) um, even create opportunities to get to know the the business better. So um, I was fortunate enough to be able to work with some of CFG's research and insights um, department and kind of do some data analysis and kind of just get to know how the business side of things worked a little bit better, which, you know, aligned nicely with, with my interest in the sports directorship. So I thought that was really cool. Um, so those, those situations all really helped me take a different perspective in terms of my rehab and allow me to kind of be in a happier physical and mental space, I suppose. But I think also it, it just made everything a lot easier for my support team. And yeah, it was just made for like a smoother transition through the phases and ultimately uh, back to the pitch. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. You can watch a full recording of the future game webinar complete with slides. You can find details on our website and on social media.